Hey, everybody. Welcome to Friday the 13th, the series. I'm your producer, Robert. And I'm your host, Robert. Yes, I'm afraid Hill Street wasn't available to cast, so it's substitute teacher day and the class is watching a movie. Get ready to go nuts. Honestly, when I chose this film, I was concerned there might not be enough to discuss. A few friends who had seen it recently told me it wasn't great. A few friends who had seen it recently told me it wasn't great, but having watched it myself not long after it was released, and it making no lasting impression on me, my gut instinct was it might just be bland and forgettable. I will assuage that concern right now. It's wacky in all the ways bad Stephen King adaptations tend to be, but I'm far more interested in a weird parallel with Friday the 13th, the series. No, not the motif of haunted antiques, but the collision of artistry and schlock. However, unlike Friday, which vacillates wildly between the two, Needful Things is an exemplar of the art schlock spectrum, beginning almost pretentious, then sliding seamlessly along the gradient to culminate in bombastic B-movie spectacle. Before beginning a beat-by-beat -beat breakdown of the entire movie, I should mention I learned there's a television cut of this film that's three hours long. The theatrical was two. My thought? Why not make predictions as I go, then, down the line, I'll watch the TV cut and possibly even read the book. Then next time I do an episode alone, I'll discuss those and we'll see if I should head to Vegas. It should prove thoroughly humbling and give Hill Street something to laugh at. Speaking of, out of respect for her and what she brings to the cast, I'm going to leave in a whole heap and help in serving of mistakes, and the only breaks I'll be taking in the read will be when I stop to make predictions, which I will do with an offensive main accent. I up for yes, or... NASA for no. Like Hill Street, by the end, I should be insane. The internet seems split on whether it's Max von Sydow or Sydow, and I couldn't find him saying his own name, so I'm going to pronounce it Sydow and anger everyone. Suck it, nerds. Finally, lest the absence of Hill Street should prompt you to turn back now, there will be a brief intermezzo in which she will regale you all with a story I previously recorded but couldn't use anywhere else. Let's begin. Needful Things. The film opens and the problems begin. Drifting rapidly over the ocean to a somber orchestral score is a pretty arty way to introduce a film that's going to climax with a gambling addict in a suicide vest blowing up Satan. But we'll get there. The camera makes landfall and all hell breaks loose. The bird's eye view worked with water because it just created an ambiguous texture that made us a little uneasy as it raced by, but was bearable. But the foliage of the trees gives us just enough footholds in what we're seeing to make it feel like we're getting Father Maris's POV rolling down that Georgetown staircase if it led directly through 2001's Stargate sequence. Would love to know if there's a reason the N and S of Needful Things are bigger than the other letters. No criticism here, just wondering if there's a deeper meaning I'm missing. The title fades out and we launch into the story proper with, wait no, we get more shots of coastline, except now, you know, unambiguous. Great. We pass an obligatory lighthouse and fade into the story proper. No! Still more coastline! Now we're closer to the water, and this section... Now we're closer to the water, and this section reads as more densely forested. I guess we rented a helicopter, we're using a helicopter. Fine. Meanwhile, chanting has joined the score, letting us know this story is going to be epic, but classy. Hey, we finally moved inland to follow a road, which justifies a transition to ground level to speed along with our hero car. Side note, in this case our hero car is being driven by our antagonist. I wonder if this opening was an attempt at paying homage to Kubrick's The Shining. Prediction time! 
Okay, is this exact car in the book? Hmm. Being the car guy he is, I'm going to make my first guess that this old black Mercedes is exactly as described in pages of detail by King in the book. So that is the firm I up to begin. Not sure if the rearview mirror not reflecting any portion of the driver is meant to alert us to the fact the car is being driven by the devil, but I like to think it is. Also, nice establishment of the antique store's customer bell here as a mirror ornament. But what, but what with its constant tinkling, I refuse to believe the devil didn't angrily chuck it out the window five minutes outside Akron. Yeah, he's coming here from Ohio. In what could be an homage to Spielberg's duel, the Mercedes growls as it passes the Welcome to Castle Rock sign. Cafe owner Polly and her waitress Nettie spy on the Needful Things antique store as it's prepared for opening, probably secretly disappointed it's not going to be an L.L. Bean. Polly is a good name for a cafe owner, but the actress playing her is Bonnie Bedelia, I'm guessing. And Bonnie is an even better name for a cafe owner. And Bonnie is an even better name for a cafe owner, so I'm calling her Bonnie from here on out. Nettie is played by Amanda Plummer, in a cafe no less, so I'm going to call her Honey Bunny for mnemonic reasons. Sheriff Ed Harris pops by to propose marriage to Bonnie, and let's not even worry about the character's actual name because none of us has the sheer strength of will to think of him as anything except Sheriff Ed Harris. This is also where we get our first bit of horror when we learn the cafe offers a special that advertises two types of mustard like it's a selling point. It's a subtle way to let us know this town ain't quite right. Honey Bunny slaps down the world's most baroque small-town newspaper advertisement for Needful Things' grand opening. Surprising how many loot-playing angels it contains, but I guess the devil couldn't very well advertise with demons in Hellspawn, so he chose counter-programming. How postmodern. Brian, a young teen skipping school, brings his mountain bike skidding sideways to a halt in front of Needful Things, the way every single boy of his generation actually did. So nice attention to detail. Ditto the water bottle and small carrying rack on the back of his bike that actually has some bungee cables or something on it. And this wasn't a stunt person. The actor actually did it on a very steep hill, on loose leaves, without a helmet. It's not an epic stunt, but definitely a liability risk for such a young actor. Speaking of the leaves, it really is great to see the fall depicted in film, especially when it doesn't have to be. Like most young boys, he's eager to check out the town's new antique store. Inside, the devil informs Brian he's been there before, despite Brian's casual protests that he hasn't, in a strange echo of Kubrick's The Shining. Prediction time! Is this referencing something from the book and TV cut? I up this has to be referencing something from the book. I'd put my money on a dream sequence, but maybe the devil just caught him snooping before the store opened. The longer cut feels less likely, but then why the reference here? So I'll stick with a less confident eye up. The devil is playing the devil is played brilliantly by Max von Sydow. Unfortunately, he brings too much class and is actually part of the tonal problem. You know, if they remade this film today, I would actually watch it with J.K. Simmons in this role. It turns out one of the devil's many names is Leland. Neat. And as friends of this podcast might appreciate, he refers to Brian as Master Brian, and so shall I. The devil presents Master Brian with the Mickey Mantle baseball card he requested, signed to him, no less. And we get our first evidence this movie isn't going to be as sophisticated as its first 10 minutes 
is not going to be as sophisticated as its first 10 minutes led us to believe. For when Master Brian touches the card, it glows and shocks him like he's Luke Skywalker, which kicks off a dream of, or flashback to, black and white footage of old-timey baseball being played. The cheesiness of the effect aside, why does he see this and not memories of collecting cards with his dad? Wouldn't that be so much more emotionally resonant? The moment is apparently subconscious because neither he nor any character in the future will ever comment on being shocked by the objects. Put a pin in that. The devil dispenses what I hope would be the first of Satan's rules of acquisition, but it turns out to be his only advice on the subject. Prediction time! Are there more of these rules of acquisition in the book and TV cut? Book? Ah, yep. TV cut? NASA. The director must have really wanted to see a beam of light coming through the window as the devil counts Master Brian's pocket change, because there's so much smoke in the store you'd think the devil must be preserving salmon in his den. Hey guys, are either of you worried that the store seems to be on fire? Master Brian doesn't have nearly enough, so a deal is made that involves him playing a prank on a couple local turkey farmers. This is the only time money is actually mentioned, which this is the only time money is actually mentioned, which absolutely begs the question, what happens if people can, you know, afford the objects? Prediction time. Is this addressed in the book or TV cut? My guess, yep, and no sir. In a little connection to Friday the 13th, the series, the devil also keeps a sales manifest, although Satan's is actually much smaller and less formal, simply listing names, but not addresses or items. His fingernails are now long and gnarly, which seems like poor timing given his need to hold a pen. In our first glimpse of, his, in our first glimpse of this town's underlying problems, Dan Keaton, the town's mayor, assaults the town's deputy over a parking ticket. In a classic Stephen Kingism, people mock Dan by calling him Buster, so King could reference silent-era film comedian Buster Keaton. I didn't do any research here, but search your heart. You know it to be true. I did, however, do just enough research to learn Buster originally appeared in King's The Dark Half. My guess, like Harold Lauder, Buster is King's heavily bullied-as-a-kid author-insert character. Prediction time! Like Harold, in the book, is he the most complex character and does he possibly even have a poetic and moving death? Not that anything about this film would lead me to that conclusion. Oh, that's a three-point eye up from center court with nothing but net. Honey Bunny carries a welcome pie over to Needful Things and is almost hit by a car, which she seems to find funny. Not sure why this was included and I hope there isn't a longer version. Inside... Inside Needful Things, elderly twins in matching sweaters are saying their goodbyes to the devil and will never be seen again. Prediction time! Is there more of them in the book and TV cut? There has to be. I'm giving two eye-ups for the price of one. Also of note, the devil had custom shopping bags printed up. I love the idea of a beleaguered, small business owner devil arguing about his bulk discount not being honored on the latest invoice. This scene is fascinating because it's the only time we see the store serving as a store. Multiple customers, antiques being discussed like they aren't magical, completely unimpressed locals. Like Friday the 13th, the series' antique store, Curious Goods, are only some objects cursed and the rest are just secular curios? Another fault line in this town becomes apparent when the female turkey rancher threatens to kill and skin Honey Bunny's dog, which is pretty bold given the whole town knows Honey Bunny killed her husband. 
It was done in defense, but one assumes she's killed more people than the turkey rancher has. This is as good a time as any to point out how much stronger the story would be without the magic items. Just a good old-fashioned morality play like High Noon, The Crucible, or, most apt, the Twilight Zone episode, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Personal squabbles between the dramatis personae of this small town have created fissures, the devil pressures each just a little, and the whole town cracks. If the antiques put you under a magic spell, then there's no moral choice, no decision, and nothing means anything. It's storytelling 101. Plus, then the movie could reach an emotional climax with a line to the effect of, well, don't you see? Plus, then the movie could reach an emotional climax with a line to the effect of, well, don't you see? It was never the demonic 18th century wood chisel. It was you all along. But no, this time the devil wins over Honey Bunny with a Hummel figurine that reminds her of being beaten by her husband. That makes even less sense than the baseball card. If these magic items are going to drive the plot, can their power at least make sense? I really want to get back to the plot, but this scene is also where the devil starts casually dropping references to things he shouldn't know about. The I really want to get back to the plot, but this scene is also where the devil starts casually dropping references to things he shouldn't know about the characters, or at least information personal enough they should be curious and or offended at his mention of it. Because no one is, and almost never does anyone ask how the devil knows what he knows, I have to believe that, like the objects, simply being in his presence is enough to put people under his spell. It's not wrong, exactly. He is the devil. But as with the objects, no one ever acts charm, so that's all pure conjecture. I'm sure someone will claim if you read every single book King has ever written, it all ties together perfectly and is brilliant. Okay, fine. A giant space turtle did it all. You win. Moving on. Master Brian arrives at the turkey ranch to fulfill his obligation to the devil by smearing mud and feces from the turkey pen on the rancher's drying laundry. Like any real kid, he fails to bring a spade or shovel or anything to collect said mud, and has to use his gloved hands. So, once again, nice job making this kid believable. Meanwhile, Sheriff Ed Harris and the devil enjoy the pie Honey Bunny brought over while discussing what brought them to town. Strangely, the devil feels like he knows Sheriff Ed Harris from somewhere, but can't place it. The Truman Show, maybe? Seriously, I can't imagine why it isn't the other way around. Okay, prediction time. Is it explained in the book and TV cut? Hmm, I up and no sir. Also odd, Sheriff Ed Harris doesn't want anything from the store, and as just mentioned, the devil almost seems out of his depth in dealing with him. So are some people just immune from temptation? So are some people just immune from temptation? In moments, Sheriff Ed Harris admits to accidentally killing a suspect, so sounds like a sinner to me. Then again, he's admitting to murder moments after meeting a man he doesn't know from Adam, so maybe he is being influenced in some way? I don't know. Prediction time. Do the book and TV cut explain why some people are more susceptible than others? The book, I up. The TV cut, NASA. One artsy transitioning shot of a church steeple set against ominous clouds later, and the film introduces Our Lady of the Serene Waters. When a church is called that, you know you're in a fishing community. Not sure why Bingo Night is spelled N-I-T-E, except they had to save one letter or it wouldn't fit. Not a mistake, just odd. Sheriff Ed, Sheriff Ed Harris shows up to hear the town's priest complain about a mean letter he received from the town's reverend that includes the slur, mackerel snapper. I admit it, I would have bet my life on this being a kingism, but no, 
Mackerel snapper is a real slur for Catholics. And Catholics, before you hurl your rosaries in my head, I'm technically Catholic, so I can use that term. In my continuing recasting of the film, Robin Williams would have crushed this role. In the background, we see a black janitor who only pops up for a brief moment much later. So, prediction time! Is there more of this character in the book and TV cut? I up for the TV cut, and knowing King, definitely an eye up for the book, although I don't think he can shine or anything. The priest steps on Sheriff Ed Harris's line in a way I don't think was intentional, but everyone stayed in character so they used it, if my guess is correct. Honestly, the production design really dropped the ball designing this bog-standard Catholic church. I've seen enough religious buildings and seafaring communities to know there should really be a nautical motif. On the turkey ranch, our female rancher somehow walks directly into muddy sheets for reasons unknown. This, happen this happens during the day, mind you. Cut to an evening shot of Bonnie answering the phone at the cafe, then nonchalantly handing it over to Honey Bunny before heading out. The moment Honey Bunny has it, the turkey rancher launches into a profanity-laced death threat on both her and her dog. So, she kept all that in check when Bonnie answered the phone, and even if she did, Bonnie had no problem handing the phone over to Honey Bunny? In a town this small, doesn't she know how much enmity exists there? Also, the turkey rancher is still covered in mud and feces, so at least an hour has elapsed, bare minimum, and she still hasn't cleaned up? Girl, you've got to respect yourself. Cut to a bar with achy breaky heart playing, the absolute last song I expect to hear on any horror film soundtrack, and I'm including Disco Duck on that list. Surprise, surprise, the town drunk and bartender don't get along, and then we learn Buster is both a degenerate gambler and a conspiracy nut, possibly suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. I admit, this film was ahead of its time in depicting realistic politicians. So yeah, Buster is definitely the most interesting character of this story, but the conspiracy angle adds nothing and should have been cut. The drunk gets kicked out and notices a letter jacket in the window of Needful Things. When he tries it on, his flashback actually makes sense, assuming that's him driving a convertible full of football players and cheerleaders basking in the glory of youth. And the devil mentions he could be great again with a few little changes. This is all great setup, but the movie refuses to pay it off. He never looks better or acts more confident or finds any success that would lead him to being willing to do anything to keep his magic. Ah, so that's what that feels like. He never looks better or acts more confident or finds any success that would lead him to being willing to do anything to keep his magic new jacket at any cost. He just wears it. This isn't how you convey obsessive desire. Gollum must be spinning in his grave. This is true for every character except Bonnie, but she's a special case, so put a pin in that too. Anyone born on Christmas knows how this next part feels, because we're going to anyone born on Christmas knows how this next part feels, because we're going to celebrate the two best parts of the movie together as they come back to back in the same scene. The funniest moment is when the Reverend asks the Devil, "May I take this opportunity to welcome you to Castle Rock on the Good Lord's behalf?" And the Devil takes a moment to think it over and replies dryly, "Why not?" Max von Sydow delivers it perfect. Max von Sydow's delivery is perfect, and the film keeps it so subtle, I'm sure some people dismiss it entirely. And the film keeps it so subtle, I'm sure some people miss it entirely. The best moment is when the Reverend presses the devil further to display an anti-Satan sticker in his window, which, in this case, really means anti-Catholic. The devil is again momentarily put on his heels, which really adds some depth. The devil is again momentarily put on his heels, which really adds some character depth. But the real gold is when the devil deflects by saying that, like the reverend, his job is to serve everyone. 
This exchange is here for dark humor, but by default wins the award for most poignant moment of the film. Before going on, I have to mention I find it strange the Reverend's Needful Thing is apparently ancient erotic art. We don't see what exactly he bought, although it must be a sculpture and not a painting. But why that and not vintage pornography or something else entirely? The priest just covets a nice, perfectly chased chalice. Prediction time! Does the book dive deeper into the Reverend's hypocrisy? Oh, you better believe that's an eye up. The devil swings by the cafe to finally meet Bonnie. I would skip this scene entirely, but the way Max von Sydow stresses the word dunk after requesting a donut, something I might dunk, is my second favorite moment of the movie. So yes, for those keeping score at home, my favorite two things are Max von Sydow line deliveries. Also of note, the scene ends with the devil turning to discover Master Brian standing just outside the window, staring at him before fading out. It's weird. Presumably it's an acolyte situation, but it's almost like the devil is the hero and Master Brian a slasher villain. Prediction time. Do they have a longer scene here in the book and TV cut? Could go either way, but I'll wager two. Hi, ups. Sheriff Ed Harris shows up at the mayor's boat business and Buster pulls a gun on him. Any repercussions? Nah. In a nice bit of story development I'm sure comes from the book, Sheriff Ed Harris and local politicians have figured out Buster is probably stealing money to cover gambling losses. Buster confirms it and asks for a little time to return it, and Sheriff Ed Harris actually agrees. None of this has anything to do with the movie, but it's more interesting, so I don't really mind its inclusion. Bonnie happens to spot them while heading down to the docks. It's not that the amount of mist swirling behind her is too much, it's that this fog has places to be. It's the movement that shatters the illusion of it's the movement that shatters the illusion of realism in film or creates a stylized effect depending on your point of view. In this case, it reads like smoke, as if before leaving she burned down the diner for the insurance money. While watching this moment, I wondered what business she had on the docks at night and figured the TV cut would and figured the TV cut would explain she lives on a boat. Not quite. She's going to visit Sheriff Ed Harris, who we'll later learn lives on a boat. So close. We're still predicting a 70% chance of Art House, with the following incredibly low-angle shot of Master Brian sitting on an enormous rock, staring pensively out to sea, the lighthouse looming over him. These days, the guy wires and weather equipment would have been digitally removed, but no harm done. Enter the Devil, who still requires more of Master Brian, who seems to want out of the arrangement. We never do learn what would happen if someone even attempted to give their precious back. Prediction time! Does anyone in the book or TV cut try to give their precious back? NASA. Buster shows up outside Needful Things and gets the full shock treatment just by looking at a horse racing game in the window. That's not fair. All he did was see a thing. I really don't understand why the devil doesn't just cut out the middleman, but we'll explore that more with Bonnie, whom we still have a pin in. The turkey rancher shows up at the cafe to break... The turkey rancher shows up at the cafe to break things and publicly threaten Honey Bunny. As you do. Meanwhile, Buster is actually using his precious to predict horse races. Cool. But we never do learn if it actually helps or not, and this scene goes on a little too long. This is also where we meet his wife, at least in the theatrical version, but she's more a prop than a character, and her use of the term honey-dipped donut instead of glazed justifies her death in my eyes. Third favorite moment of the film, and it's once again with the devil. While listening to Ave Maria before a roaring fire, 
He sets down his brandy snifter to escrip his hands until they tremble, while beginning to cry or laugh or both? Is he puncturing his own palms with his nails? I don't know. There's no blood. There are also no tears, just a series of shallow breaths of exertion. The first time I thought he was causing himself pain and crying. The second time it occurred to me he might be laughing. What is happening? I have no idea what's occurring or why this shot is here, and like Red in the Shawshank Redemption, truth is, I don't want to know. I like to think some scenes are so beautiful they can't be expressed in words. Dissolve to sped up footage of storm clouds rolling in past the lighthouse. Probably the second best image of the film, right on the heels of the first. Then they ruin it, with a scene of Master Brian pitching apples like baseballs through the windows of the turkey ranch. As if the audience wouldn't understand otherwise, they play a baseball announcer's narration over it. It was probably meant as dark humor, but they already had both orchestral fanfare and boosted the glass-breaking sounds. It's all a little much. The music, over an, the music over an otherwise silent montage of destruction probably would have been more impactful. On completion, Master Brian seems suddenly aware of what he's done, but again, there is no sense of him either being under or coming out of a trance. Not sure why Needful Things is closed until further notice. I guess the devil is getting on in years, and there's only so much evil he can do without a little break. While the town drunk is murdering Honey Bunny's dog, she's decorating Buster's house with fake parking tickets to the tune of Hall of the Mountain King. Ah, keeping it classy, movie. To add some suspense, Buster comes out of his study and almost encounters her, which doesn't work for two reasons. One, they're so close together she would have to make zero noise not to be heard. Two, the use of the music creates a tone of dark humor which doesn't jive with the suspense. Maybe the near encounter was also supposed to be humorous, but it isn't, so epic fail any which way you slice it. So Honey Bunny returns home and opens a closet to find her dead-skinned dog. Good God, movie. Talk about tonal whiplash. Dude didn't just kill it, but skinned it and trust it like a Thanksgiving turkey. This is, hands down, the most horrific moment of the film. Guessing this isn't in the TV cut. Even when we're not seeing the corpse, in close-up, I might add, the clear shadow of a dog's head is thrown on the wall beside Honey Bunny. This is probably so they'd have an option for TV, but it just adds to the horror here. I was expecting to see a dead dog, but good lord. And back to the devil as he again listens to Ave Maria by a roaring fire, his devil teeth now visible as he chuckles to himself. Got to admire a man who enjoys his work. Believing the turkey rancher was behind the dog murder, Honey Bunny shows up at the turkey farm, knife in hand, ready to kill. Believing Honey Bunny smashed her windows with apples, the turkey rancher is likewise cleaver in hand, ready to kill. Thy fearful symmetry notwithstanding, there was really no need for the window smashing. You really only need one person showing up to commit murder to justify a fight to the death, especially between two characters who hate each other. Granted, Master Brian's dirty sheets prank was pretty mild, so maybe the smashed windows were included so he would feel deeper regret, but I still argue it wasn't necessary. Now, a prolonged knife fight set to Ave Maria. Delightful. It's interrupted halfway through for an attempt at dark humor when the turkey rancher's husband finally notices the busted windows, but they would have been better off just letting the fight play out. Both women die, and the devil checks them off a surprisingly short list of names. I guess he's all about quality over quantity. Buster bursts into needful things, claiming they're after him. Then we see that two cop cars do, in fact, come roaring past. So prediction time. Uh, this one is a no-brainer. I up and I up. The book and TV cut explain this. 
But that's another odd thing about Buster. He acts like a paranoid schizophrenic, but his crimes are known by some and suspected by others, so he's right. They are after him. Bonnie is already at the store, hoping to receive an antique that will help with her crippling arthritis, so let's finally unpin her. She's the one character who acts like her precious is, in fact, precious, and she does so because it literally relieves pain. This is where the central metaphor of this story can be found. One would think it would all be an allegory for consumerism or capitalism or materialism, but Dawn of the Dead, this is not. It's not about any ism, it's about addiction. Specifically, I believe, King's. He is once again working through his struggles with substance abuse the only way he knows how. That's also why Buster is addicted to gambling and we have a town drunk. What about everyone else? You're right. I don't think they fit the metaphor very well and they only exist because King likes to write ensemble pieces that often would benefit from a great deal of editing. Honestly, I think the man has written many fantastic stories, but I think his shorter pieces are frequently his best. Not to mention, at this point, he was coming off a lot of drugs. Granted, commercial consumption can be a form of addiction, but these people aren't ravenously consuming. They all just want one thing. Sometimes to feed an addiction, sometimes to eliminate pain, sometimes to escape reality for a spell. So I don't think this is Requiem for a Dream, in which different addictions are just the symptom of holding on too tightly to our hopes and fantasies. I think addiction itself is as deep as this well goes, and even then, the execution is clunky. Despite what I said about Bonnie's situation being exceptional, she's also exceptional in another way. Apparently, the devil wants to bang her, as evidenced by her electrocution cutaway scene of her being ravaged by the devil. Apparently, the devil wants to bang her, as evidenced by her electrocution cutaway scene of her being ravaged by the devil. Technically, this is a flash forward, and the only one we get in this cut of the film. Why her, or maybe more accurately, why only her? Never explained. Prediction time! Was this explained in the book and TV cut? I'll put my money on I up and Nasa. Back to Buster. We get an explanation for why he thinks they're after him. It's just not a good one. Apparently, the obviously joke parking tickets Honey Bunny put in his house are enough to convince him nebulous forces are actually out to get him to the point he's currently holed up in an antique store with a loaded gun. Man, this character is all over the map. <laughs> Sitting against the couch hurts my back. I hit that. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be against like a hard wall to be comfortable. If it's anything soft, my back just takes its form and it hurts. <laughs> oh, nice. You are made out of putty. Oh, delightful. No, wait. Oh, wait. That actually reminds me of a story. Wait, I have to tell you this. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this. When you said made out of putty, I swear we'll get into the, the show in a second. But uh, I should tell you this because it's so funny. So I went to the chiropractor. And he's like looking at my legs and he's like, take your shoes off for a second. And I take them off and I was like, are you going to talk about my feet? I'm aware that I have bad feet. Like I've been told by several doctors that my feet are really messed up. And he's like, yeah, um, I'm going to take you in for like a foot scan. He had like this machine that like x-rays your feet or whatever. I'm like, okay. Um, he's like, yeah, it just tells us like if you need arch supports or whatever. I was like, oh, I definitely do. But sure, go ahead. I was like, this other doctor told me I had like super messed up feet. So they do the little the scanner does a little scan of my, of my feet and his nurse is in there with me and she like the scan finishes and their their scale of like good to bad like the severity goes up to 125 
it scans my feet and it comes out to a hundred. Go on. It comes out to a hundred and seventy-six, and she goes, she goes, oh my god! She's like, I'm sorry, I've just never seen that before. I didn't know it could go that high. This, she's like, you have the worst feet I've ever seen. She's like, I'm so sorry. I've just, I've done this for a long time, and I've just never seen that. I've never seen a foot. I really wish I could show you the picture. I actually have it on my phone. She's like, I've never seen a foot do that. Like, it's so flat. Like, even your toes are, like, pressing into the floor. Like, even your toes don't curve. She's like, I'm just like, she's like, I'm sorry. Am I being rude? I was like, oh, no, you're fine. I've heard it all before. She was like, my mind's blown. Like, I just didn't know that feet could be this bad. And she's like, she's like, I didn't know our scale went this high. I was like, yeah. So anyway, so I go back in the room with the doc, the chiropractor, and he's working on my shoulder. I was like, did you look at my foot scan yet? And he was like, not yet. We'll look at it together in a minute. I was like, because your nurse kind of freaked out. Like she said, it's the worst she's ever seen. And he was like, well, that's not good bedside manner. She shouldn't say that. I was like, oh no, it's okay. I did. She's taking an Instagram photo with it. <laughs> right? She's like, pointing doing duck lips i'm like yeah i know like she's definitely passing it around up front to all the other girls they were definitely all freaking out so uh, he's like she shouldn't have said that i was like no it's fine so he's like let's yeah. look at it he opens it up he goes good god he's like he's like i've never seen this he's like i've been a chiropractor for 25 years i've never seen feet like this he's like how are you walking right now i was like i don't know but uh he's like oh sorry sorry uh he's like oh okay i'm sorry if that was rude i was like no it's it's fine apparently i'm horrifying your entire office but uh, so just like the timing of him it, i you can't make this up he literally was like i she shouldn't have said that that's rude he opened he clicks it he's like good god Okay. <laughs> so, good. so good. It's basically, there's so much pressure on your feet. They imagine if they take off their shoes, they're just going to see like two moldy grapes. It's just <laughs> like, if, it's like, don't hop off the table. They'll explode on impact. I know. I, I told him that my sister always makes the joke that my feet are made out of Play-Doh. And every time I walk, they just like completely slap the floor. Uh-huh. And he was like, I get that analogy. That makes a lot of sense to me because I have never seen a foot this flat. He's like, it just like sinks into the floor completely i was like you know what i'm still kicking they're still getting me from point a to point b but you know (laughs) he was he was like the consequences of this are severe severe (laughs) i was like what do you what are you trying to sell me because i'll buy it (laughs) exactly yeah this is turning into a real auto mechanic situation ma'am legally i can't let you walk out of here on these feet like what do i need crutches a wheelchair i'll take it what do i gotta what do i gotta say to put you in some prosthetics today (laughs) can we just get a saw in here let's just cut them off (laughs) oh it's so funny anyway yeah so i am made of putty if you like the horror genre as much as we do you can preview the horror comic book requiem for a psychopath right now for free at the inner demon entertainment website Imagine a world in which horror film slashers are real. Then imagine a troubled teen bringing one out of retirement to help him take revenge on his bullies. It was written by me and drawn by friend of the show, Stephen Yu. Again, that's Requiem for a Psychopath on the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And, if you dig it, please either review and rate it five stars on Amazon, or don't rate and review it at all. Ratings of less than five stars send the algorithm into murder mode for some reason. Thanks. I hope you enjoy it. 
We're just over the halfway point and can feel that the slide into pure schlock began not long ago, but few things are black and white. So now we get a really interesting and unique moment in which embattled holy men, a priest and a reverend, momentarily put aside their differences to deliver last rites and a death blessing respectively to Honey Bunny and the Turkey Rancher. Honestly, it's probably too late for these two to play nice, and this bit probably should have been cut, but it does serve to create a momentary breather from all the supernatural nonsense going on by this point in the story. Unfortunately, that's just background to the actual focus of this scene. Sheriff Ed Harris questioning of Sheriff Ed Harris's questioning of Master Brian about the Applegeddon that preceded the murders. Everything about this exchange is odd. First, Master Brian tries to convince the deputy to let it, to let him speak to the sheriff. First, Master Brian tries to convince the deputy to let him speak to the sheriff, only to immediately button up and deny any knowledge of Applegeddon the moment Sheriff Ed ha- Sheriff Ed Harris walks directly up to him and begins questioning him. Second, Sheriff Ed Harris tosses him an apple he's been holding in bloody surgical gloves. Third, not trying to tell you how to do your job, but did you just toss evidence from a crime scene to a minor? Is that how chain of custody works in fishing towns? Like a Maine versus Connecticut lobster roll situation? Fourth, Master Brian attempts to catch the apple, but fails, which I think was unintentional. Intentionable? <laughs> but fails, which I think was unintentional, but fine. Fifth, there appears to be a news crew in the background. No problem with that, but they're using a boom microphone like they're making a movie when reporters typically hold the microphone, thus eliminating the need for an entire crew member. As Master Brian leaves, he bumps into Satan. Earlier shots prove the production occasionally had to shoot in light rain, even though the scene didn't call for it, and this one proves they had to shoot in light snow. Unfortunately, that means cutting back and forth to shots in which it isn't snowing. I'm surprised a film of this budget didn't I'm surprised a film of this budget didn't have the funds to reshoot these minor but continuity breaking shots. Finally moving on, we now get our last and most artistic shot of Master Brian chucking stones. Cut to a police conference room with sunlight cutting through so much smoke to backlight our characters to the point of mere silhouette. I'm not sure if we're going to discuss the murder or be tasked with finding out what Rosebud means. I would skip this scene entirely, except I noticed, deep in the background and only for a moment, a woman in large sunglasses and a leopard coat walk past for a split second. I assume she was supposed to be a prostitute, but it turns out we'll see her several more times without ever meeting her, because this is Master Brian's mother. Prediction time. Did she develop more in the book and TV cut? Oh, that's a fat stack of, uh, yep, drizzled with maple syrup. She's definitely an unfortunate actor whose lines were cut from the theatrical release, and I feel certain we learn more about her in the book. Oh, prediction time, daily double. Do the book and TV cut have Sheriff Ed Harris doing actual police work to arrive at the conclusion Master Brian threw the apples? Tough call, but I'll go, uh, yep. But, in this cut, he simply feels they didn't finish their conversation at the crime scene, so tracks Master Brian down to continue the questioning. This is when we learn Master Brian is the first character s- This is when we learn Master Brian is the first character to suspect the devil of being evil. Definite echoes of King's It here, also a splash of Salem's Lot, and really any other story of his with kids realizing a danger before the adults. This is also when we learn Master Brian has been having nightmares about the devil. So again, prediction time. Were these scenes in the book and TV cut? Were these... Ah. Prediction time. Were these dreams in the book and TV cut? Dreams and vague psychic unease are classic king, so I'm putting a brick on the eye-up pedal, then rolling out of the car. Well, this is it, folks. 
the schlock event horizon, after which subtlety and sophistication are irreversibly, exponentially replaced by camp and melodrama. Master Brian is sitting high up on some industrial structure, most likely supporting the hillside town from sliding into the ocean. So the potential for suicide by way of a fall was served up on a silver platter. But instead, a crying Master Brian whips out a shiny handgun, racks the slide, and puts it to his temple. It's all downhill from here. Master Brian pulls a kingism twofer when he warns Sheriff Ed Harris not to come closer so he doesn't get the stuff on him, and then calling the devil a poison man. Try, try, try to understand. He's a poison man. I'm guessing the stuff means his brains, and the second speaks for itself, but man, King, why can't your characters just speak like human beings? Prediction time! Are these two phrasings lifted directly from the book? I'm awfully glad you asked me that, Lloyd, because I just happen to have two 20s and two 10s right here in my wallet. I was afraid they were going to be there until next April. So here's what. You put it all on. I up. As Sheriff Ed Harris dives for him, Master Brian proclaims, Mickey Mantle sucks, which sounded way cooler in the screenwriter's head, then pulls the trigger in slow motion, except the extreme close-ups of the gun destroy any sense of geography, so we don't know whom, if anyone, was shot. Not knowing is fine, but these two shots of the gun just feel completely disconnected from all time and space. And another arty extreme low angle of the devil on the rocks beside the lighthouse as angry clouds race past. Too little, too late movie. Only now, on my only now, on my third or fourth pass over this script, do I wonder if these shots were filmed specifically for the theatrical cut. As something for the editor to cut away from to ah. As something for the editor to cut away to when omitting scenes from the longer TV cut. The movie picks up pace at this point, and so will I. The priest slashes someone's tires outside the bar. Inside, Buster announces he'll fire the drunk Monday morning. Master Brian's mom is present, but says nothing. The bartender throws out the drunk in his letter jacket, who sees his slashed tires and blames it on the bartender, which doesn't seem plausible and isn't necessary since being physically thrown out seems like reason enough to take revenge. Sheriff Ed, has it. Sheriff Ed Harris visits Bonnie to announce Master Brian's attempted suicide, so apparently he shared that news with her before Master Brian's mother... Prediction time! Do the book and TV cut go into more detail about the attempted suicide? The book? Ah, uh, yep. The TV cut? Nah, sir. Sheriff Ed Harris seems to lament the fact he could have stopped him, but he did, so not sure why he says this. Curious Goods is now a mun <laughs> Curious Goods is now a munitions depot and the devil an arms dealer. In my trans if my transition felt non-existent, good. That's what I was going for, because somehow this tonal shift hits even harder than Master Brian's suicide attempt. I'm not talking about vintage weapons. I mean sniper rifles, grenades, gatling guns, box after box of dynamite, and they're not even displayed or even on shelves. The devil is now just a survivalist hoarder with enough high explosive to level a city block lying around like a dragon's treasure, tastefully accented by candles and fireplaces and lit cigars. In this one scene, which is really just about giving the town drunk a shotgun to kill the bartender, they shoehorn in dialogue to explain the devil provided the weapons for all history's wars, once again making humans less culpable, and a line about the devil thinking Jesus was a promising young man. Really not sure what to make of that last line in this context, but there's no reason for the devil to be sharing any of this information, and to his credit, 
The drunk acts like he could care less. Sheriff Ed Harris must be pretty suspicious as to the devil's true identity by this point, because the moment he spots Bonnie's magic necklace, he correctly guesses it cures her arthritis. His instincts are confirmed a moment later when he receives a call, informing him the devil's alias didn't check out. Bonnie defends the devil, giving them something to argue about, but it won't lead to anything of consequence. When Bonnie, now in little more than a nightgown, for some reason, tries to open the necklace's pendant, it zaps her and falls off. With all subtlety now gone, her arthritis comes racing back with sound effects that were probably the result of Foley artists breaking stalks of celery. The devil shows up to help her put it back on, and despite the crippling pain, she first asks him what's inside the pendant. We won't get an answer. Prediction time! Do we learn what's inside the pendant in the book or TV cut? The book? Uh, I'll see your eye up and raise you an eye up, further wagering it's some dark power that ties into the whole king mythos. As for the TV cut, who really needs clear storytelling, so NASA. Again, this storytelling is absolutely the best metaphor for addiction. Nope. Again, this storyline is absolutely the best metaphor for addiction, as the devil offers to sell the pendant to her for $20 and a small favor, which turns out to be of the sexual variety. But just to rub some salt in the wound, the devil first convinces Bonnie that Sheriff Ed Harris is colluding with Buster on his embezzlement, further fracturing their relationship. While exploring the now-empty Curious Goods, Sheriff Ed Harris is scared by a random boiler flare-up, complete with an animal growl sound effect and fire that emanates from in front of the boiler because they apparently didn't think the flare-up inside the boiler was big enough. Between this and The Shining, I wonder what type of boiler-related accident King had as a child. The devil keeps vintage newspapers about all history's greatest atrocities, and Sheriff Ed, Har and Sheriff Ed Harris takes some as evidence. Of what? I don't know. Unfortunately, his focus on that means he stopped searching and missed the stockpile of pipe bombs and dynamite just 10 feet away. We really do only see what we're looking for. On his boat, seen here for the first time in this cut, Bonnie discovers envelopes of cash, supposedly proving his corruption. However, I doubt he would just leave a pile of bribe envelopes out on his desk, and I definitely don't think he'd accept them in window envelopes. Upon receiving the vintage newspapers, the deputy asks Sheriff... The deputy asks Sheriff. Ugh, I'm really bad at this. The deputy asks Sheriff Ed Harris the correct question: Are you really suggesting this antique dealer was committing crimes in 1894? Before they can hash it out, Bonnie phones him to call him out on alleged bribery. Bold move for someone who just cheated on her fiance with the literal devil. Outside the station, Buster crashes into the deputy's car. Why he's the one escalating makes no sense as it was the deputy who was last wronged via a gift bag that turned out to contain a mousetrap. Then again, I don't think the deputy ever accepted a curio from the devil, so he's not under the devil's control. Prediction time! Is there a scene in the book or TV cut that sets up why Buster is coming after the deputy right now? I'll send a heavily armored IUP division to both the eastern and western fronts. They fight in the rain, and Sheriff... They fight in the rain, and Sheriff Ed Harris has to come out to save the deputy. I have to say, timing a lightning strike to a punch to emphasize it is a great idea, and one I'm surprised we don't see more often. A line here implies Buster gave Master Brian the gun he used to attempt suicide, so there's definitely a missing scene from the book and TV cut. No guessing necessary. He handcuffs Buster to his own car, then just leaves the concussed deputy, then just leaves the concussed deputy to handle things while he goes off to deal with all the mounting chaos around town. I guess he's working with what he's got, but that doesn't sound like a solid plan. And in fact, it isn't. 
We get some ill-timed dark humor as the deputy pretends to shoot Buster, to which Buster responds by beating him unconscious, then taunting him with an actual playground na-na-na-na-na-na. What is happening to you, movie? Sheriff Ed Harris returns to his boat to discover the planted money along with Bonnie's engagement ring. Yeah, I think she would go ahead and hold on to that. One can only assume the deputy didn't have handcuff keys on him because Buster drove home still handcuffed to his car door. We now get our longest scene with Dan's wife, and it's we now get our longest scene with Buster's wife, and it's a scene that should have been cut. I'd skip it myself, but Buster asks if his wife had an affair with the deputy, so prediction time. Were there more lines in the book and TV cut that implied he suspected this? And did she? I'll go with I up regarding his suspicion, but NASA that she actually did. I guess they left this section in, hoping Buster's scenery chewing would be funny enough to justify it being here, but it isn't. And the movie would be stronger just seeing the aftermath of his wife's death, letting us imagine it, and it would keep the pace moving forward in the home stretch. They already have the perfect shot and could have just cut to him cleaning his bloody hammer after calling his wife to the garage. But instead, we get some Shelley Duvall-level groveling from a character we don't know. Then she accidentally calls him Buster and is bludgeoned for it. If this were Tales from the Crypt, it would be perfect. A shotgun double KO in the bar takes out the town bum and the bartender. Meanwhile, Buster is bearing ex- Meanwhile, Buster is burying explosives at the Catholic Church, and the devil shows up to micromanage. Just let the guy pray while he commits sin for you. What's the harm? This is a band-aid moment that attempts to justify why the devil needs people to do his dirty work, in which he claims he can't work miracles, and cause the in which he claims he can't work miracles and cause the earth to split open and swallow humanity. Fair. But he can bury a bomb, can't he? Or fire a gun or stab someone? Really, this proposed answer just creates more questions. Prediction time! Does the book skip this metaphysical, theological rationalization to, instead, offer a complicated mythology likely tying into the greater king mythos? If you have to ask the question, you already know the eye up. I admit I've never read King's It or seen the TV version, and I only watched the first half of the 2017 two-part movie, but I have listened to dozens of reviews and spoken to friends at length, and whenever I say something like, I'm fine with the creature feeding not only on fear, not only on long-developed fear, but on the long-developed fear of children in particular, but why do all the adults in town act so strange and make no effort to help? I'm told something to the effect of, well, the creature also has the power to kinda make adults turn a blind eye to it, Wow, how convenient. I guess it's not lazy writing if you address it's lazy. This is all to say the devil in this story is charismatic as hell because he's helping This is all to say the devil in this story is charismatic as hell because he's being played by Max von Sydow. But let's not pretend this devil is playing three-dimensional chess while the town is all playing checkers. If King had spent less time churning out hundreds of pages, he might have spent that time honing the story down, and maybe even creating a Red Harvest-type tale in which the devil deftly learns everyone's weaknesses like a film noir detective, then suddenly turns them against each other like a master politician. Here, all he does is arrive at a pre-existing powder keg and lights a match. However, knowing King's taste in horror, horror films specifically, I don't think that was ever the intention. But if this story was always intended to be an homage to B-movies, but if this story was always intended to be an homage to B-movies, I just wish it wouldn't have hit the ground. But if this story was always intended to be an homage to B-movies, I just wish it would have hit the ground running and ditched all pretense at high art. 
Buster's admittance that he's scared and just wants to die is interesting and reveals the devil's hold over his victims isn't total, but the bombastic performance just steamrolls anything we might have actually felt for the character. Both Sheriff Ed Harris and the deputy are at the bar. Wonder who called in the double homicide since the bar was empty. Sheriff Ed Harris leaves an active crime scene for an obligatory subtext-as-text discussion with the priest in which he claims people have a choice to be good or evil, which flies in the face of everything this movie has told us. The priest argues the devil has always been in their town as he, unfortunately, lives in our hearts, and Sheriff Ed Harris shuts him down to say, no, he's an actual man in the town, and they need to kick him out. Great. Real profound. That's something we can all work with. And now, for your viewing pleasure, an explosion. And another. Yeah, the bomb wasn't enough. Moments later, lightning strikes the steeple and it comes crashing down. Not sure who takes the rap for that one. Did God just intervene to stop a priest from killing a preacher? That or just an insane coincidence? I really don't know. We now enter the road warrior portion of the film, with all society breaking down. Just one question, why is it breaking down? The film established a list of 14 names before the devil hung his closed sign, and those people seem to be dying in pairs because they already hated each other, and five have already been taken off the board. So why is the whole town taking on an every-person-for-themselves mentality? Prediction time! Does the book or TV cut explain why everyone has gone insane? Ah, yep. I'll guess the book explains this with a vaguely defined psychic horror that's something like the devil's background radiation. Call it passive anarchy, if you will. As for the TV cut, NASA. A character named Frank, we've barely seen, beats a man for taking his copy of Treasure Island. Prediction time, again. Do we learn Frank's story in the book and TV cut? Please. Ah, yep. Sheriff Ed Harris intervenes, but once again sends a concussed man to drive himself home, so not real knowledgeable about head trauma. A motorcycle almost runs him down, and the choice of a motorcycle for that mission seems odd and specific, so just for fun, prediction time! Is there more about the motorcyclist in the book and TV cut? Uh, the book? Ah, uh, yep. The TV cut? NASA. Master Brian's mom shows up again when looting begins, but only for a moment, and we already discussed her. Funny, looting actually would support an anti-consumerism message the story isn't telling. We get another explosion when someone blows up a store for no reason. Yeah, Satan, people just need a little push and a block of C4. For those keeping score, that's two nearly back-to-back -back explosions Sheriff Ed Harris has survived so far. The Reverend is about to hack the priest in two with, honestly, I don't know, a halberd, maybe? It's like a cross between a cricket bat and a Final Fantasy buster sword? I'm guessing it has something to do with commercial fishing. Prediction time! Is it here because King tried to make it a thing in the book, like the Roke Mallet in The Shining? Just call it Croquet. Croquet is obscure enough. No one knows what Roke is. Anyway, and you knew this was coming. I yep. The fireman nonchalantly watching the impending sacerdotal murder at least makes for an enjoyably surreal moment. The priest gets the upper hand and Sheriff Ed Harris is about to shoot him until the devil actually spurs him on, obliterating any distinction between using violence to save lives versus using it for personal gain or satisfaction. And that's ignoring entirely, and that's ignoring entirely the trolley problem aspect of this moment, where it's really just choosing which person is going to die. For reasons that will forever remain a mystery, screaming and firing his pistol repeatedly in the 
Screaming and firing his pistol repeatedly in the air diffuses the situation, and everyone gathers around for a Capra-esque monologue to the townsfolk. See, man of steel, that's how you do it. The devil calls him a wussy. The devil calls him a wussy. Really, film? Playing coy now? As part of the climactic speech, the script leans hard into a fuse box metaphor that would have, could have worked, but they extended the metaphor until it broke. I'm sorry, uh, shorted out. Once again, it's actually raining in this scene, but not in a way the production intended. It works, maybe even adds something, but given how often we see the actor's breath in the night scenes, working on this film must have been cold, wet, and miserable. A lot of characters we never met get name-dropped here, so prediction time! Are these all characters we... Ah, you know the drill by now. I up the book, I up for some of them in the TV cut. In fact, we finally learn Master Brian's mom is named Cora, and she finally gets a line, and that Master Brian is in the hospital, presumably from the suicide attempt. Prediction time. Was the hospital scene in the bookend movie? That's a double dose of I up. The devil actually calls them puppets, which is kind of the biggest problem with the story, so definitely a gambit that doesn't pay off. Buster shoots Sheriff Ed Harris with a high-powered sniper rifle, but only wounds him before revealing a suicide vest and threatening to blow up the town, so I guess the devil did have a plan B after all. I'll give him that. Of course, if destroying the town was the only goal, Buster should have been plan A. Sheriff Ed Harris assures Buster he didn't bludgeon his wife to death with a hammer. The devil did. So again, no one's culpable and none of this means anything. Dang it, this was almost over and Max von Sydow had done everything he could to elevate the material, but now you made him say, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me, and even he finally collapses under the load. Prediction time. Is that an exact line from the book? Well, it's not technically a kingism, just an old-timey saying, but one I'm convinced warrants a firm, confident, I up. This film came out in 93, but the 80s one-liner craze was still in full effect, so Buster has to tell the devil, don't call me Buster, before tackling him through a window and blowing up needful things. We assume on purpose, although who really knows. With that, a badly bleeding Sheriff Ed Harris survives his third explosion of the last 10 minutes. And to be fair, it puts modern CGI explosives. And to be fair, it puts modern CGI explosions to shame. Debris rains down on the priest and preacher, hiding in a cemetery that, I guess, is located on this town's main street. One of the tombstones wobbles, and I wonder if King requested that as an homage to the low-budget horror films of his youth. The devil walks out of the burning rubble completely unscathed, gives Sheriff Ed Harris his best, gives Sheriff Ed Harris his best, and proceeds to inform him he'll have a wonderful family and that he will meet his grandson in Jakarta in 2053? Okay. Prediction time. Is this a reference to the King Mythos? I, yep, I guess. Maybe something covered in the book's epilogue, or maybe just something you have to understand from reading other King books. I'm shocked this line is here, but also don't care anymore. Also, are we to assume from this Bonnie's first child will actually be the devil's? I see a strong argument, but it's not definitive. As the devil drives out of town, it's sunny, which is super weird because it was just night and stormy. As he passes the Welcome to Castle Rock sign, his Mercedes just up and vanishes. 
Just to remind us how far we've fallen, to close, we revert back to full art house pretension with a helicopter shot along the coast, playing in reverse, set to operatic chanting as the credits roll. The credits confirm, like Friday the 13th, the series, this was also shot in Canada. Unbelievably, we actually end on a positive note, as it's refreshing to see a film with a longer list of stunt performers than the special effects team. Thanks for listening, everyone. We know you have a lot of choices when choosing a Friday the 13th the series podcast, and we sincerely thank you for choosing ours. Special thanks to Joshua Romeo for original music, and to Stephen Yu for original art. If you want to support our show, you can leave a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you want an occasional update on our projects, you can sign up for our newsletter at the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And if you want to follow us on social media, honestly, we don't like social media. We're not good at social media, but links can be found on our website. And always remember what Carl said to Frylock. It don't matter. None of this matters. Good night, everybody.